We'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for November 30th, 2008. And uh, today we're going to be talking about, again, continuing this study that we're doing on the Antichrist. And it started out where, is Obama the Antichrist? So we're going to be looking at a little bit more further today. But we're also doing a total comprehensive study looking at the Antichrist and all the different facets um, that you need to look at in regard to the subject. And that's why this is going to turn out to be probably, I don't know, eight to ten parts, this study in total, uh, because there's so many different things that you really need to talk about from a biblical and from a current event standpoint to thoroughly address this subject in totality. Uh, this article that we're going to be looking at today is entitled, Will the Revelation of the Antichrist be Billed as the Second Coming of Solomon? And again, really what we're looking at here is the Solomon aspect of the Freemasonic, of the uh, high-level occultists, how they're looking at Solomon relating to the Antichrist. And a couple verses that we can start out with is Matthew 22:41 and 42, where it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. And again, that's a confirmation of the previous scriptures we gave last week where, where it talks about how the Messiah will come from the throne of David and these types of things and come up through that lineage. Um, and then Luke 11.31 says, The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Now Jesus Christ is the one that gave this quote, and he called himself, he's, you know, a greater than Solomon is here. But as the Bible said, he came to his own, and his own received him not. Not not all of them, but, but for the most part, corporately, um, the Hebrew Israelite people rejected Jesus Christ. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Uh, and he's, he's saying here, a greater than Solomon is here, in, in regard to himself. So, some of the ancient Sanhedrin, of, of uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin, believed that King Solomon was the Messiah rather than a type of Christ. This error led them to reject Jesus Christ as Messiah. This, this error in part, I should say. So this is one of the reasons that, that um, um, Jesus Christ was rejected. Today, the same false belief will, will lead many Jews to receive the Antichrist as, a possible, as the possible second coming of Solomon. The counterfeiting of Solomon has been masterminded by the Priory de Zion and will be carried off by the Merovingian false Christ. Now, I understand, there's a lot of controversy about the Priory de Zion, and there's a lot of uh, people that say, oh, it doesn't exist, and this and that, but the, the overwhelming evidence, I believe, proves is that there is a conspiracy in this area. The Freemasons, it's no mystery that they're absolutely obsessed with Solomon. Many of the degrees and the oaths and the blood oaths that they have to take revolves around Solomon and Hiram Abiff, and how that relates to Solomon's temple, and uh, the Kabbalistic um, uh, witchcraft is obsessed with Solomon, and that's the highest form of Jewish witchcraft that there is, the, the, uh, uh, this type of thing. So, again, when you look at the Kabbalah, uh, that's obsessed with Solomon. And, and you've got a lot of different things here pointing back to Solomon. So, that's, that's why I wanted to do this study today, because it does relate to that. 
So today, the same um, false belief will lead many to, to receive the Antichrist as the second coming of Solomon. The counterfeiting of Solomon has been masterminded by the prior design and will be carried off by the Merovingian false Christ. Okay, and again, we're going to be talking more about this Merovingian false Christ today. And again, this is what you get in with the Da Vinci Code and uh, the Lost Tomb of Jesus and a lot of these shows that have come out recently to question who Jesus Christ is. So, the uh, part of this opening paragraph points to the fact that the Antichrist will most likely... Uh, look like Solomon, and, and when they, I mean look like him, not, I believe, physically, but more of the attributes that the occultists believe that he exemplified. The Antichrist will conduct his fair affairs like Solomon, and we're going to prove this, okay, from, from different sources. The Antichrist will also profess to come from the lineage of Solomon, and again, we talked last week about how he will most likely claim to come through Solomon, but that's not the line that Jesus Christ came through. When you look at Luke 3, that's the lineage of Mary, and that's the actual bloodline of Jesus Christ, and that actually came through David's son Nathan, not David's son Solomon. Okay? So, and then also the Antichrist will carry out the offices of Solomon. So these are just some things that we'll kind of be looking at here. Um, So one of the premises for this is that King Solomon's reign was so peaceful and prosperous that he was thought by some at the time to be Messiah. Uh, in the days of Solomon, the situation was so favorable, as 1 Kings 4.25 reports, that it seemed as though the Messiah had come. Now, all these quotes today that I'm reading you are reference from different uh, books or from the Bible itself. Uh, this next quote is, The idea that Solomon was the Messiah was justified, for his reign was one of both splendor and peace. 1 Kings 421, and Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river under the land of the Philistines and under the border of Egypt, and they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life, for he had dominion over all. Now, you can understand, I mean, with Solomon, I mean, he was, you know, wisest man, you know, that that, that ever lived, save Jesus Christ. He was uh, the richest man that most likely ever lived. Uh, he did have a gigantic kingdom, uh, and it even talks about that it was so prosperous during his reign that, that essentially silver really wasn't worth a whole lot. That, that it was, silver was, was like some common metal, okay? Gold was actually the thing that was the, but that's how prosperous this time was. So he had dominion over all the kings on the side of the river, uh, and he had peace on all sides round about him, and Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba. All the days of Solomon. And the Jewish Kabbalists have taught that Solomon was the Messiah. Okay, so now again, the Jewish Kabbalists were were being represented here by the highest form of Jewish witchcraft that there is, the Kabbalah. Okay, this is what Madonna's into and a lot of the Hollywood stars. And if you see them wearing like the little red string bracelet, you know that they're into the Kabbalah. Okay, 99 times out of 100, I would imagine. So, uh, the Kabbalists are, this is a very, very, very high level form of witchcraft here. Very, very powerful stuff. The Encyclopedia Judaica says that of the six-pointed star, which they call the hexagram. Now, I've done uh, two different teachings on the six-pointed star. And all you have to do is key in the word hex or hexa 
in the uh, keyword search box on my homepage, and you'll find it. And how that also relates to the mark of the beast. Okay, so I've done I've done two other studies on the mark of the beast beside that. And if you want to know about the studies I've done on that, just put in mark the 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 uh, just M A R K in the search box on my homepage, and you'll find those studies. Uh, but the Encyclopedia Judaica says the six-pointed star, which they call the hexagram, the two Kabbalists, Isaiah and the son of Joel, Baal Shem, and Abraham Hayem Koitin, testified that the symbol sprang up in Kabbalistic circles where the shield of David became the shield of the son of David, the Messiah. Now, what I believe about this whole thing about where they're saying the shield of David and the shield of the son of David, that would be, uh, the shield of the son of David would be more in reference to Solomon, the son of David, okay? But this whole thing where they call the hexagram the star of David, I don't believe David ever had anything to do with this most wicked of all witchcraft symbols. I mean, in the occult, when you're trying to summon a devil or a demon from another plane of existence, you cast a six-point star on the ground, and this is part of the ritual, that it's more, it's more powerful, it's more wicked than um, a five-pointed pentagram. Okay, it's well known in, in the occult circles that this is the case. Okay, and again, I get into this on the teaching I did on the hexagram. So, uh, I think they try to legitimize the hexagram by saying it's the star of David. When in reality, what it is is the seal of Solomon. I don't have a problem with them calling it the seal of Solomon because Solomon got into some extremely high-level witchcraft in the latter part of his life, because his wives and his concubines drew his heart away from the Lord. It's very clear that that happened. In the Bible, it's very clear. So, continuing, this is a quote from Albert Pike from Morals and Dogma, which is kind of like the Bible for the Freemasons, even though most Freemasons haven't even read it. And there's two versions of Morals and Dogma. The, uh, oh boy, the esoteric version is the one where you get the real stuff about where they that where they talk about that we worship Lucifer and you'll see a lot of quotes in there about that but that's extremely extremely hard to find the esoteric version um, so anyway this this is a quote from there page 210 and it says now remember this is from Albert Pike okay the the highest ranking confederate war general that w- that ever had a statue of him erected in the city limits of Washington DC he was the guy that started the Ku Klux Klan uh he was the one that revived modern-day Freemasonry in the 1800s. The guy was a very, very wicked person, okay? He said, the lion that guarded the Ark, evidently, this is probably the Ark of the Covenant he's in reference to, the lion that guarded the Ark and held in its mouth a key wherewith to open it, figuratively represents Solomon of the lion of the tribe of Judah who preserved and communicated the key to the true knowledge of God, of his laws, and of the profound mysteries of the moral and physical universe. The lion still holds in its mouth the key of the enigma of the sphinx. Okay, and again, that's kind of a crazy statement. But that's one from Albert Pike. And I guess the point you really want to take from this is that high-level occultists, particularly those that are involved with the Freemasons, have been obsessed with Solomon for probably you know, thousands of years at this point. So, something you want to bear in mind. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is an antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Uh, This is a uh, quote from the 
Parisian Jewish Review from 1861, page 74. And it says, The spirit of Freemasonry is that of Judaism in its most fundamental beliefs. Now, this isn't the Judaism of the Bible. This is in reference to the Kabbalistic Judaism. Okay, And they get into a lot of extra-biblical books like the Midrash and the Talmud and the Kabbalah. Okay, and this is why they get off base. This is why they get, I mean, if you saw the things that the Talmud says about Jesus Christ in the Babylonian Talmud, and I did a whole teaching on the Talmud, uh, just key in Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D, in the search box, and you'll find it. I mean, it's unbelievable what they, what they say about Jesus Christ in the Talmud. And this is what happens when you get away from the Word of God. Okay, they don't, you know, they, they'll, they'll supposedly go by the Torah, first five books of the Bible, but then they've also got the Talmud and the Midrash and, and, and the Kabbalah. And when you get into all these extra-biblical things, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And that's what you're dealing with there. Uh, you're going to get off in left field chasing fly balls. So, the spirit. Of, this is from this uh, quote. The spirit of free, Freemasonry is that, is that of Judaism in its most fundamental beliefs. Its ideals are Judaic. Its language is Judaic. It is very... Its very organization almost is Judaic. And again, I think the reason they're saying that is because, again, you look at all the different degrees of the Freemasons. Okay, So much of that revolves around Solomon, Solomon's Temple, Hiram Abiff. And again, these are Jewish. That's why they're saying, I believe, it's so uh, oriented in being Judaic. And then it goes on to say, whenever I approach the sanctuary where the Masonic order accomplishes its works, I hear the name of Solomon ringing everywhere and the echoes of Israel. And again, that's true. I mean, just if you had a Freemason that would be honest with you, you, you he would tell you the same thing. Then it goes on to say, these symbolic columns are the columns of the temple where each day Hiram's workmen receive their wages. They enshrine his revered name. This is Hiram Abiff they're in reference to. We'll talk about him later. And then the whole Masonic tradition takes me back to the great epoch when the Jewish monarch, fulfilling David's promises, raised up to God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a religious monument worthy of the creator of heaven and earth, a tradition symbolized by powerful images that have spread outside the limits of Palestine to the whole world. Uh, and then this is another quote from Morals and Dogma, page 785. The ritual of the degree of Kabbalistic and Hermetic rows is this passage, that, quote, the true philosophy known and practiced by Solomon is the basis on which Masonry is founded, or the, or the Freemasons is founded. So they base everything off Solomon and the Freemasons. And what is Freemasonry? It's basically repackaged Babylonian mysticism witchcraft. That really, I believe, we, we can go back to the Tower of Babel and when all the religions were as one, okay, and then God split, God separated them. He confounded their languages, and they split up. They each one of those tribe, each one of those tribes of people, took a different sect of their respective occult knowledge with them. That's why God split them up at the Tower of Babel, okay, so, because then none of them could have all of all of the pieces. They had their own respective niche, and that's why you have all these different religions around the world. That's why you have Shintoism and Buddhism and Hinduism and whatever else. Okay, because they split up at the Tower of Babel 
They've each got their respective piece of the pie. And, and at the time, God knew that if they put all those pieces of the pie together, that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, and that, you know, nothing would be held back that they would try to do. So he had to split them apart. Today, we're having the same dynamic happen. And probably the greatest example of that are the Freemasons that want, that are striving to bring in a new world order, to bring in a one world religion, okay? To bring back the Babylonian mystery religions, the whore of Babylon. That's the goal, deep down, of the Freemasons. And that's why it's so dangerous, okay? What, and again, then we look at the Freemasons. What is the centerpiece of their beliefs? Well, you really need to look at Solomon. Okay, and how does Solomon relate to the coming Antichrist? Because there's a lot of parallels there. And again, that's why I'm doing this study today. So, if we go further here, Solomon was in some ways a type of Antichrist. Uh, if we go to uh, 1 Kings 10.14, it says, Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and 6 talents of gold. 666 talents of gold was the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year, I, I believe is um, tribute to him or taxes or whatever. So, 666, okay, kind of an interesting thing there. And then we have Revelation thirteen eighteen, where it says, Here is wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 603 score and 6, 666. Okay, so it's interesting Parallel. Obviously, you can't build a whole dogmatic doctrine off that, but I'm, we're, we're, we're doing this, we're trying to put a puzzle together here, and that's just one part. Uh, the Second Coming by William Butler Yeats, a 19th century theosophist. Now, we talked about Yeats when I did my study on C.S. Lewis, okay, and uh, how he related to the uh, theosophy and... Uh, to the same, I, I, I believe the Hermetic Order, the Golden Dawn, which was the same order that C.S. Lewis was a part of. These are high-level occultists, okay? And so the second coming by Butler William Yeats, a 19th century theosophist, and, and again, H.P. Blavatsky, Madame Blavatsky, was the one that started theosophy. She was an incredibly wicked woman, uh, was in regular communication with these ascended masters uh, that are the, the same ascended masters that are around today saying the exact same things, but she was one of the first ones that ever published their messages. She was essentially a Luciferian, extremely high-level occultist, uh, had all kind of contact with these ascended master devils, was an incredibly driving force. I have a documentary on, um, on the Third Reich, and I was re-watching it the other night. And it went into how much Hitler was influenced by, by H.P. Blavatsky, by Madame Blavatsky. I mean, it was one of the absolute total driving forces behind the Third Reich. I mean, I'm not talking some fringe thing here. Uh, because of her is the main reason they adopted the swastika. Because she had been over to Tibet and... Uh, supposedly had had an audience with all these whatever they were high level probably ascended masters or whatever when she was in Tibet and came back knowing that the swastika symbol which actually comes out of Hinduism that's why that's why um, the uh, they knew about it before the Nazis in other words okay the swastika and she came back and she said this is this is the highest level symbol that she could find 
in witchcraft. Now, I believe the hexagram is higher, but she was saying the swastika is, is the highest. And she basically said what it was symbolic of is the fifth root race of, of the Aryan, which is this godlike race that Hitler was trying to bring forth um, through selective breeding, through killing off of the what they call undesirables, and through the killing off of the Jews. They had to go, because these other races had to be eliminated in order to preserve this pure Aryan bloodline, what they termed as the fit, fifth root race, and the absolute essence of that was the swastika. And that's why you saw it everywhere. That's why it was, that was why it was all over all of their regalia and all over their flags and all over everything. That's what it symbolized. And um, this relates into, then you can go into what they call the discussion of the runes that they were looking at. I mean, the Third Reich was was one of the high, most high-level occult governments that has ever existed on the planet. They were totally ruled through high-level witchcraft. Okay, And H.P. Blavatsky had a lot to do with that. And then Charles Darwin had a lot to do with it too. Because Darwin... You know, his theories of evolution gave them justification to eradicate the Jews and those that were, they, they perceived that were not of pure Aryan stock. Okay? In order to be an SS officer, you had to trace your lineage back to 1750 of pure Aryan blood. You couldn't have a filling in your tooth. You had to make, maintain a certain height requirement, a certain weight requirement. I don't think you could have any kind of blemishes, so to speak, on your body. I mean, it was it was a lot of uh, very, very stringent uh, qualifications to get into these things. And they would actually go to other countries, um, Norway and Scandinavia and these types, and actually seek out Ary- who they termed to be good Aryan stock, and they would recruit them. They didn't want to kill them. They would want to recruit them into their army because they believe that they're part of their, of their lost brethren. Okay, But a lot of it had to do with Madame Blavatsky, through the implementation and bringing in of the swastika, the fifth root race is what it represented. The Aryan is what they said it represented. And then also Charles Darwin, which gave them the justification for, you know, euthanasia, selective breeding, killing off of the Jews, killing off of the undesirables and other races that weren't considered pure Aryan stock. Uh, again, it was, it was just, it was unbelievable. But I, I, was, look, I was watching Hitler's speeches. And the, the crowds that this man had, now granted, I'm sure a lot of it, people were afraid not to go, okay? But the crowds that were there, that was just, I mean, I, I've never seen that many people in one place ever. It was unbelievable, the spell that had been put on the nation of Germany. I mean, we're talking a high-level witchcraft spell. He had occult symbology all around him. It's no wonder they were they were under a spell. And I look at that, and I look at Obama, and it's a very similar dynamic because people are going to to they called the Führer uh, Adolf Hitler the Messiah. They sang songs to him in school, honoring him as their god. And I said all that because now they're doing a lot of the same thing with Obama. He's, you know, a lot of them, people are going and calling him the Messiah. They're, they're fainting in his presence. They're getting healed. Uh, all, they're having all of these, quote, epiphanies and all these spiritual things happening to them. It's just a very eerily similar dynamic. Granted, it's not to the, to the state 
than it was with Hitler at his height, but Obama's just getting rolling here. So anyway, I just thought that that was some interesting parallels there. Uh, we'll see what happens in the future. But I don't believe, again, I don't believe Obama's the Antichrist. I believe he is a Antichrist. But if you think what we've seen with Hitler or Obama is something else, where do you see what's coming when the Antichrist gets on the scene? <laughs> it's going to blow away anything we have ever been able to comprehend. And that's why the Bible says, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So, going further with this, uh, William Butler Yeats, 19th century theosophist, envisioned the return of a mysterious beast, which had the head of a man in the body of a lion, and is symbolized by the great sphinx of Egypt. Okay, And again, the sphinx is a very occult uh, Egyptian Symbol, okay? Anything you get over Egypt, okay? The Bible warns about Egypt a lot. It doesn't, it says, it told the kings not even to go over there to get their horses, okay? And, and again, if you, if you've got a false version that you're reading, a false Bible version, like the NIV or, uh, New American Standard or whatever version, Living Translation, that Bible that you have actually originated in Alexandria, Egypt. You can trace that lineage back to Alexandria, Egypt. Okay, and then it went from there, basically filtered through the Catholic Church, through two different versions called the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, which Westcott and Hort, two high-level occultists that were associated with a lot of the people that I just talked about, um, Charles Darwin, uh, they had connections even in through with H.P. Uh, uh, Blavatsky. They they translated these two corrupt Catholic manuscripts the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, into the revised version of 1881, which essentially has spawned all the modern-day translations. The King James Bible came up through a totally separate, different line, originally starting in 1611, through Antioch. Okay, Not through Alexandria, Egypt, but through Antioch, which is where they were first called Christians, according to the Bible in Acts. And that was a totally different line. So again, there, that's something very, very important that you're reading the right Bible. Because if you're not, it's going to affect your discernment. I know it did me. I didn't get my eyes open to a lot of the stuff until I got the right Bible in my hands and started reading it. I was blind. I'm talking totally blind to a lot of the stuff that I talk about this day until I got, until I started reading the right Bible. And then it was all of a sudden, my eyes started getting open to a lot of the apostasy that was going on in the church. And I, and I thought to myself, why didn't I ever see this before? Because I was blind. I was reading an leavened word. I wasn't getting full uh, discernment of things as a result of that. So again, I've, I've done whole teachings on the King James. You can just key in King or James in, in the uh, keyword search box. Oh, and if anybody wants to be on my email list, I have two email lists. I have a Christian and a health newsletter. Uh, just email me. My email address is on the homepage. Email me and just let me know which one you would like to be on. And I'll add you on. So if we go further, uh, the ancient beast that this Yeats was talking about is said by the occultists to have sired a dynasty of kings called the Merovingian bloodline. Now again, we're going to be talking more about this Merovingian bloodline. We already have touched on it. But again, you know, this Merovingian thing is, is, uh, 
it, it plays a lot into the Da Vinci Code and into, into a lot of the deceptions that uh, we're dealing with in the end times here. So this beast, which um, which is an ever incarnate in the dynasty of ancient kings, suffered a grievous wound in its head, which means that it was removed from power. The Bible foretells that the wound of this beast will be healed and it will be returned to power for a time. Now this is in reference to... Um, Revelation 13, 1-3, which says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his ten horns ten crowns, and upon his head heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of the heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And this is again what you're going to get. You're going to get all the world wondering after the beast. Okay? And after the Antichrist, and probably after the false prophet. Everybody's going to be wondering. They're going to be so awestruck with the lying signs and wonders and miracles that are coming that that's all they're going to need to know. They're, they're not, they're going to care less about what the Bible says, they're gonna, even if they've heard about the mark of the beast, there, it's not gonna matter to them, because they are gonna be under his spell. Just like all those people in, in Germany, or most of them, were under the spell of Hitler. Mass, this is gonna not be just mass witchcraft over a country like Germany was under Hitler's spell, and under the occultists that were really over Hitler. This is gonna be globe, this is gonna be a global spell. This is gonna be, and again, this is going to be the essence of the one world religion. Witchcraft. The Antichrist is going to cause craft to prosper in his hand. He's going to be an understander of dark sentences. You know, he's going to practice, as the Bible talks about, he's going to practice witchcraft. And um, so, you know, if um, it's going to be the essence of the coming one world religion. And it's going to be a, an amalgamation of all the religions coming into one, just like the Tower of Babel. Okay? They're going to be bringing all this occult knowledge back under one religious system, which makes it more powerful. Because now all those little parts that were split up at the Tower of Babel are going to come back together. It's going to be much more powerful. And you're, there's going to be such unity to bring this about as well. You're going to have people you know, in unity wanting this to happen. There's going to be very little resistance other than the true Christian remnant. So there's a famous legend in the Judeo-Freemasonry, which is metaphorical account of the demise of the ancient dynasty and loss of the secret doctrine which they possessed. According to the Masonic legend, Hiram Abiff was a man of Tyre and the son of a widow. Now, the Bible does mention Hiram Abiff, okay, Solomon's chief builder, okay, when the temple was being erected. According to the Masonic legend, Hiram Abiff was a man of Tyre and the son of a widow, and the chief architect of the temple built by the King Solomon. Okay, I think we can prove that biblically as well. Uh, but Hiram Abiff, Freemasons teach, was the only one on earth who knew the secrets of the Master Mason. Now again, this is one of the one of the degrees in the Freemasons, okay, it has to do with Hiram Abiff. I think there's other ones that have to do with them too. Uh but this, this, uh, he was the only one that knew the secret of the Master Mason, including the most important secret of all, the Grand Masonic Word. 
the name of the God or the ineffable name. Okay, now we see a lot of this in today's day and age with, um, you know, we can't say the word God. We can't say, you know, this or that. And I'm going to do a whole study on this and this is probably going to really cause a lot of people to want to get off my my email list. And um, But I'm going to be doing a whole study on the Tetragrammaton and this whole ineffable name thing and how we uh, how there's a lot of people out there that say we have to use the Hebrew names of or, or the Greek names of Jesus or Jehovah or whatever in order for it to count. Uh, I'm going to show you where that actually comes from. And uh, I've gotten a lot of confirmation on that just doing this study. But I haven't done a study on that yet. Uh, but I'm going to hopefully in the near future. So this Hiram has promised to reveal the secrets of the Master Mason, including the name of God, which is what they term as the Grand Masonic Word, upon completion of the temple, and how to make the workmen Master Masons able then to go out as their own masters. One day Hiram went, as was the custom, into the unfinished Holy of Holies at noon. Now this was supposedly when the temple was being created, okay, when, when Solomon had hired Hiram Abiff in order to, to build the temple. And so one day Hiram went, as was the custom, into the unfinished Holy of Holies at noon to worship and draw up work plans on his trussel board for the workmen to follow the next day. As Hiram was leaving the temple, he was accosted by three, quote, ruffians in succession who demanded that they be given the secrets immediately without waiting for the temple to be completed. This was the... This, the secrets of the Master Mason they were wanting. Okay, now understand, this is a whole degree in the Freemasons, that they, they reenact this thing during, I forget exactly what degree it is, but they reenact, you know, they got like dear guys bumping you with these little things on your head, and suppose, yeah, it's, it's they, they reenact the whole thing of Hiram Abiff um, dying and then being resurrected back to life with the strong grip of the lion's paw. It's very, very symbolic of the resurrection of Jesus, kind of a mockery of Jesus Christ, okay? So as Hiram was leaving the temple, he was accosted by three ruffians in succession who demanded that they be given the secrets immediately without waiting for the temple to be completed. He was handled roughly by the first ruffian, Jubela, but escaped. He was accosted and handled roughly by the second ruffian, Jubelo. He again refused to divulge the secrets and escaped again. And then the third ruffian, Jubileum then accosted him, and when Hiram again refused to divulge the secrets, killed him with a blow to the forehead with a setting maul. It was like a hammer type of thing. The body was hastily concealed under some rubbish in the temple until midnight, when it was taken out to the brow of the hill and buried. Uh, That was a quote from a book called The Deadly Deception by Jim Shaw, The Legend of Hiram of Biff. The, re- the references to Hiram Abiff as the son of the widow is an esoteric allusion to the lineage of Ruth in the Bible. The family line which the Messiah would be born, and that is true. Okay, that was the, you had Salmon begetting Boaz, Boaz begetting Obed, Obed begetting Jesse, and Jesse begetting David. David begetting Solomon. Okay. I just read Ruth again the other night. Oh man, that's an awesome story. I love that story. It's just a, it's a real, if, you, if you're like feeling down or something, it's a good, 
you know, reading Psalms is good. Reading the book of Ruth is good because it's really kind of an uplifting, uplifting, really neat, awesome, praise God type of story, you know. And, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of negative stuff in the Bible because a lot of the stuff that we need to know is hard. It's, it's hard, uh, hard, heavy duty stuff. But there's, there are certain stories in the Bible that really are, man, you know, are super uplifting. And that's definitely one of them. So the great grandson of Ruth was King David. And one of her great grandsons was Solomon. Hiram Abiff, the architect of King Solomon's temple, was a what they term as a hermetic alchemist, described as an artificer of metals. In the Freemasons, Hiram Abiff is identified as the son of the widow. And in Grail lore, like the Holy Grail, you know what they say the Holy Grail is? The cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper. Okay, that's the Holy Grail, and that's what all of King Arthur's... Um, Knights were in search of, but actually, if you look at the Merovingian aspect of it, they don't say that it's the cup that uh, Jesus drank from as the Holy Grail. They say it was Mary Magdalene who is the Holy Grail, because Mary Magdalene, they say, was the one Jesus married after his fake crucifixion. He married her, moved up into the European regions, and they had, I believe, a daughter. Mary was considered the Holy Grail because she was the receptacle of the seed of Jesus. So they referred to her as the Holy Grail. I don't even like repeating that because it's blasphemous, but that's what they believe when you hear about the true meaning of the Holy Grail. That's what I believe they're really in reference to. Okay, so anyway, that's a side note there. But um, in the Freemasons, uh, Hiram Abiff was identified as the son of the widow. And in Grail lore, the constant epithet of Percival is precisely the same. So if we go further, uh, the original widow in the Grail bloodline was Ruth the Moabite, the heroine who was the heroine of the book, book of Ruth, okay, who married Boaz to become the great-grandmother of David. Her descendants were called the sons of the widow. And that that is from that book, Bloodline of the Holy Grail. Um so it is important to note that according to Luke 3.31, Jesus did not descend genetically from the line of Solomon, but from Nathan through Mary's bloodline, who was another son of, you know, Nathan was another son of David. And again, we did a whole study on that teaching. And that's, again, that relates to this. I didn't know it was going to relate to this until I read this. And I said, wow, I've already done the study. We've already confirmed that aspect of this. But however, Solomon did become the model for the Merovingian kings. The Merovingian kings did not rule the land, nor were they politically active. Governmental functions were performed by the mayors of the palace. They were avid students of the proper kingly practice in the ancient tradition, and their model was King Solomon. This is the Merovingian bloodline that we've been in reference to. The son of David, King Solomon, the son of David. Their disciplines were largely based on Old Testament scriptures, but the Roman church nevertheless proclaimed them irreligious. And that was, again, a quote from the Bloodline of the Holy Grail book. Okay, so continuing on, according to the legends of the Merovingians, of the Judeo-Freemasons, King Solomon, who was also a master of the ancient wisdom, was able to raise Hiram Abiff from the dead, thereby restoring the secret doctrine to mankind. 
Solomon himself went up to Hiram Abiff's grave and raised the body up with the, with the grip of the master mason or the strong grip of the lion's paw that I made reference to. And again, they've got a whole degree devoted to this in the Freemasons. Hiram was not only brought up out of the grave, but restored to life. The first word he spoke was the replacement for the Grand Masonic word, loss of his death, and that word is the one passed down to the Master Masons to this day. And again, they're very, very obsessed with words, okay, particularly with words that have uh, supposedly high-level occult significance. And this gets into this whole ineffable name of God thing, which a lot of the Christian Zionists and uh, people that are into that get really, really, really entangled in. And again, we will be doing a whole study on that in the near future. With the death of King Dagbert II, the secret knowledge perished from Europe. However, when the beast rises up out of the sea with its seven heads and ten horns, the second incarnation of the ancient dynasty of the Fisher Kings, the false Christ, will instruct all mankind in the secret doctrine and in the practice of witchcraft. Now there, these are occultists confirming that the, the coming one world religion is going to be witchcraft. Okay? So, let me just repeat part of that. It says, when, this, when the beast rises out of the sea, the second incarnation of the ancient dynasty of the Fisher Kings, which is the false Christ, will instruct all mankind in the secret doctrine, the practice of witchcraft. Okay? And then the essence of this is embodied in the Freemasons. Okay, and a lot of that revolves around Solomon and the hexagram. This also relates to when you see this, uh, the ancient dynasty of the Fisher Kings. It also relates to the god, uh, Dagon. Okay? Dagon was the god when Samson went in and fought. Okay? This was the, the in the temple that he ended up destroying at the end. He, he ended up destroying himself, but he ended up destroying the temple too when he got his strength back. Well, this was the temple of Dagon. Okay, and the Dagon also relates to the Catholic Church in that when you look at the side, you ever see the Pope and he's wearing one of those miters? Okay, the miters, if you look at it from the side, looks like a fish's mouth open. Okay, and that is representative of the fish god Dagon. Okay, so that's another way that Catholicism incorporates high-level occultism into their um into their religious practices and tries to put a Christian veneer on it. Okay, just one of the many ways. And then also in inside the Pope's mitre it will actually say uh Vicar of Christ. The word vicar means substitute. So they believe the Pope is the substitute Jesus Christ on this earth. Actually, you know, it's the false Christ, but they would they would claim Jesus Christ. So again they they uh they believe all that garbage. So, if we go further, this is Daniel eight twenty three through 25, and it says, in the, in the latter time of their kingdom, when the tr- transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sen- sentences shall stand up. So, let me just go one by one on this. So, in the latter time of the kingdom, when the transgressors are come to a full, okay, this is the time we're in reference to here. I mean, doesn't it feel like the transgressors are coming to a full? I mean, the world's so wicked right now, you know, it's hard to imagine it getting more wicked, but it's going to get a whole lot more wicked. But when these transgressors come to a full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding of dark sentences shall stand up. So this is what the Antichrist right now is waiting for. 
is when the transgressors come to a full. So as the world gets more wicked, we're getting step by step by step closer to basically letting the Antichrist come to power. Okay, And the Bible says in Psalm 12, verse 8, that the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Now, we've got an extremely vile man, and one in there right now, but we've got an extremely vile man going into the office of, of pres presidency in Obama. And when you have somebody like this, who is, who is of the basest, vilest sort, going into office over a country, you're exalting him, right? Well, the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. So don't expect anything to, anything to get better. Expect it to get worse. This is why I have such a hard time with all these feel-good, lukewarm churches that are out there preaching, you know, maybe at best God's love and that's all you're hearing and not warning you about all the things that are coming or basically telling you that we're going to make things so good through dominionism that Jesus Christ is going to come back. We're going to make it better and better and better. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible clearly states it's going to get worse. Okay? So, um, going further then, and so the, uh, the understanding of dark sentences shall stand up, this king of fierce countenance. Now, I believe this is most likely in this context, in reference to the, to the high-level witchcraft, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Tower of Babel. Because again, we're going to have all the religions coming back as one. Okay, the Antichrist is going to draw upon that, and he is going this this understanding of dark sentences. I believe is in reference to the high level witchcraft that uh, he is going to be able to uh, tap into. And then it goes on to say, "In his power shall be mighty." What what's the source of that power? Witchcraft. Okay, so the Antichrist power is going to be mighty. The source of the power is witchcraft. And then it says, but not by his own power. Really, it's going to be Satan empowering him. Okay, I, I believe is what that's in reference to. And then it says, and he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper, and practice. What's he going to practice? He's going to practice witchcraft. A witchcraft practitioner. Okay, and he shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And th but again, he's not going to destroy everybody now, okay? So don't so don't get all down in the dumps and say, well, I don't got a, a chance or whatever, you know, because God always does preserve a remnant. And then it says, and through his policy, this is in reference to legislation, okay? I mean, and again, I look these words up in a lot of times. I'll look them up in Strong's, and I'll look them up in the 1828 Noah Webster to see what the actual real definition is. So through his policy, meaning his legislation, and, and to simplify it as much as I can, through his policy, well, he shall also cause craft to prosper in his hand. Well, how do you think the gays are being protected? Through these hate crime laws. It's going to be the same policy that's going to cause witchcraft to become the one world religion. Because they're going to start to pass other laws through policy that are going to make it, you know, illegal to speak out against any other different religious systems. And let's face it, 99.9% .9 of all religious systems on the earth are false. Even in the pseudo-Christian movements, most of them are false. Most of them are works-based. Or, or some lukewarm representation of what the Bible actually says. So even the, the, the Christian ones, most of them are false anymore. So if we go further, so through his policy he shall cause craft 
to prosper in his hand. The witchcraft. He's going to cause a craft. Okay, so again, we have many, many references there to the dark arts being what is actually the coming one world religion. And the highest practitioner of those arts will be the Antichrist. The Antichrist will also require everyone to receive the mark of the beast. Now, they're referencing this as the seal of Solomon or the six-pointed star. Now, again, I did a whole teaching on this. I don't think it's just going to be the six-pointed star. I think the mark of the beast is most likely going to be a mark that will be used to be able to identify you as his followers. If it was purely just a microchip, you can't just look at somebody and know if they're microchip implanted, right? I think it's going to probably be some type of combination. Whereas, if you just got a tattoo of, let's say, a hexagram, how are you, how are you going to use just a tattoo to buy or sell? Okay? It's most likely going to be a some type of mark in combination with an implantable microchip because then you'll be able to do both. You'll be able to identify them, uh, and you'll also be able to actually buy or sell transactions through the implantable microchip. Okay? So, I, I, I that's my theory. I've done whole studies on this that you can reference. And this, this they're saying that it'll be either the Seal of Solomon or the Six-Pointed Star in a tattoo form on the right hand or on the forehead. Uh, the forehead, if it was on the forehead, which is um, representative of the third eye. Okay, which we talk about in the, the occultists are obsessed with. And then it says in Revelation 13, 16, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. In, in. Okay, King James is the only one that gets that right, where it says in the forehead. The other versions, the other uh, uh, false translations that are out there, will say on. Not in, on. So it acts like it can just be a tattoo. Or something of this nature. So it's very important, again, what Bible you're reading. Because King Solomon is also highly revered by the occultists as a master of the secret doctrine, and because there's evidence in the Old Testament that Solomon brought the occult arts into the nation of Israel, which was at peace and, and prospered materially during his reign, some of the world Jewry, and it's not jewelry, but Jewry, like the Jews of the world. Some of these are being led to expect that the Messiah will be a priest king who is the second coming of Solomon. So the question that they have posed here is, is there enough evidence from Scripture and other sources to support the belief that the Antichrist will claim to be a reincarnated Solomon or second coming, I like to refer to, because, I mean, I don't even like to refer to reincarnation because uh, it's such an unbiblical doctrine type of thing. The Bible says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. We don't just to keep get coming back however way we please. Now I believe the same different people can be possessed by the same demons at different times. I mean obviously when you die those demons have to go somewhere and what they go is they seek to inhabit another body. Okay. So, yes, you could have somebody born 2,000 years ago having, let's say, for the cleanest example, the same demons possessing them a person that lived 2,000 years ago had. Okay, that's, that's quite possible. And I'm sure it's happened many times. So, they're posing the question, is there enough evidence from Scripture and other sources to support the belief that the Antichrist will claim to be the second coming of Solomon? To determine this, the following report documents the parallels in the lives and the works of King Solomon 
Uh, also, Jesus Christ, the Antichrist, and the Merovingian kings. Now, I'm not going to go over every single one of these examples. I'm just going to hit some of the ones that I believe are pertinent to this study. The correspondences between these personages are presented in the forms of tables. So, this format is chosen to enable the reader to see the various similarities and contrasts side by side. I will post this link in a PDF format so you can go, if you really want to research this further, you can go and look at all these different side-by-side -side comparisons. In the last category, the Merovingian king's information is presented about their current heir, a parent of the Merovingian dynasty, who is being promoted for the role of the Jewish false messiah. And she's saying it's Thomas Planter de St. Clair, the Grand Master of the Prior de Zion. Okay. Again, I'm not doing this study to say, okay, I know who the Antichrist is, I've totally figured it out, and it's him. And to put all my eggs in that one basket. There are so many theories out there on who the Antichrist is. What I'm trying to give you is a broad, biblical perspective. An occult perspective. I'm trying to tell you what do the occultists, what are they expecting? Because, unfortunately, what's going to happen is, is when all the stuff starts to go down... Where we've, where we've got World War III and then we've got probably the Ascended Masters rising and possibly Lord Maitreya and these types of things happening, the occultists and the New Agers are the, going to be the ones that appear vindicated. And the uneducated Christians are going to appear, I guess that expression is with egg on their face, they're not going to look like they have a clue for the most part. They're not going to understand what's going on. They haven't been educated in this. They don't have the right Bible and their pastors have not prepared them, for the most part, not everybody, but for the most part, for what's coming. And that's, that's again, what I'm here to do, is to try to equip you. So again, I can't be 100% dogmatic how this is absolutely 100% going to go down. But what I'm doing today is presenting you information so that, kind of giving you a broad paint brush stroke, so that you can understand, okay... If it happens this way, we've talked about it. If it happens this way, we've talked about it. Okay, we've covered that base. Okay, and that's, again, why I'm doing such a broad study in the Antichrist. Because there's a lot of different ways this could potentially go down with him actually arising in, as far as who he claims to be in this type of thing. So, the prior design is probably a front for the learned elders of Zion, the high Kabbalistic of international... Uh, Jewry, responsible for the protocols of Zion. Uh, the House of Rothschild is to believe to be the hidden hand behind the protocols, the Benai Brith, and the Order of the Priory of Zion. Okay, and, and I believe the Rothschilds are behind it. They're the highest level ranking family in the 13 families of, of the Illuminati. Uh, they are um, into the highest forms of, as, as the Rockefellers, into the highest forms of the Jewish Kabbalistic uh, witchcraft religion, and they're the ones that are orchestrating a lot of this. So Solomon's background, although Solomon appears to be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, presented in Matthew 1, this was the lineage of Joseph, who was not the real father of Jesus. And again, we did a whole study on this previous weeks. Jesus Christ was the tribe of Judah, through Mary's lineage, which is seen in Luke 3 to be from the King David through another son, Nathan, rather than Solomon. Although Solomon possesses many of these same traits as Jesus Christ, he does not possess all the attributes of the Messiah as foretold in the Old Testament prophecies. In fact, many of the Messianic prophecies, and indeed a good portion of the Old Testament, had not even been written by the time Solomon 
This does not prevent Merovingians from exalting Solomon as the Messiah, though, and as their model for their kings instead of Jesus Christ. So an overview of Solomon, we, we can look at... Um, from the tribe of Judah, he's considered Ruth's child because you know he came up through David. Um, line of the tribe of Judah, uh, we we look at that where it talks about in Genesis forty nine ten, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, uh, the kingly scepter. Okay, this is one of the messianic prophecies, uh, and then we have uh, this whole thing about Ruth's child. Um, and again, we that to me that's kind of irrelevant. I mean, you know, we're just talking about lineage here. But Ruth four ten through thirteen, uh, in essence, Boaz took Ruth and she bare a son, Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, who was also the father of David. I already kind of mentioned that. So we can look at that, and then we can look at the um, the Antichrist, Daniel eleven thirty seven. It says, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. And we're going to be looking at that a little bit more. Um, And we're also going to be doing a full study in the tribe of Dan. I'm not going to get into that yet, though, and how that relates to this, because that's a very interesting study that also relates to the subject. The Merovingian kings of Jewish descent, uh, this is a quote from the bloodline of the Holy Grail, says, regardless of their ultimately Jewish descent, the Merovingians were not practicing Jews. Okay? Uh, then another quote from Bloodline of the Holy Grail, the fish was an emblem of the Merovingian kings along with the Lion of Judah. So they, they adopted a lot of different things. They also adopted a lot from the tribe of Dan. So they kind of were, were mixing a lot of different things in the Bible, I think, to legitimize themselves. Another quote from Bloodline of the Holy Grail, in Ar- Arthurian lore, meaning the Arthur- Arthurian legends, the Knights of the Round Table, the Davidic sovereign lineage was represented by the Fisher Kings of the Grail family. Remember the Fisher Kings, and I always think of Dagon, okay, the god that the false god that Samson fought against. Um, so they were the uh, Davidic sovereign lineage was represented by the Fisher Kings of the Grail family, and the patriarchal line was identified with David. Okay, so again, they're very obsessed with Solomon and David and these types of things. Remember, Satan's the master counterfeiter. Okay, and he's very good at what he does. So, this is one of the reasons I believe that's the case. This is a quote from a cult conspiracy. And it says that Elias Ashmole and William Lilly founded the Rosicrucian Lodge in London in 1646 based upon the utopian ideal of the creation of a new Atlantis, which symbolized the golden age before the fall when humanity was spiritually perfect. <laughs> Okay, well, when Adam and Eve, okay, but, you know, I think they have a different take on that. And then it says, and the rebuilding of Solomon's temple as revered in the Templar tradition. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton drew a reconstructed floor plan of the Solomon's temple. That's from a source called Templar Revelation. Now, there's been a lot of discussion lately on the new book that's come out, um, regarding Sir Isaac Newton's work, okay? And it's like temple or whatever of the... It has to do with the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, I don't agree with it. In fact, I've I've put together a whole little uh, email on it that is warning people to stay away from this book uh, because it's 
essentially purely based on high-level occultists that have done research over, you know, the last, I don't know how many years. Uh, Isaac Newton being the chief one, okay? And Isaac Newton that was the Grand Master of the prior design from 1691 to 1727. He was involved in very, very high-level occult stuff. Why do we want to go to a high-level occultist in order to get answers about the Bible? And in order to get answers about, you know, the things that are to come? I just don't understand that that line of reasoning. It's very dangerous. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. We need to stick to the Word of God. Okay, so again, I would, I am, uh, I'm cautioning people in regard to that. I think it's temple at the center of time or something. I don't know, but it, it's. I believe the book's very dangerous when you when you get into that type of stuff and you start embracing it and you start following high-level occultists, I don't see how it's going to have a good outcome. So if we go further, this is another quote from Bloodline of the Holy Grail. It says, The Merovingian kings were noted sorcerers in the manner of the Samaritan Magi. They firmly believed in the hidden power of the honeycomb because a honeycomb is naturally made of hexagonal prisms. Remember the hexagram? It is considered by philosophers to be the manifestation of divine harmony in nature. Its construction was associated with insight and wisdom. To the Merovingians, the bee was the most hallowed creature. A sacred emblem of the Egyptian royalty, it became a symbol of wisdom. Some 300 golden bees were found stitched to the cloak of Childric I when his grave was unearthed in 1653. Napoleon had these 300 bees attached to his own coronation robe in 1804. Why were they obsessed with bees? One of the reasons they were obsessed with bees is the whole thing about how Samson went, and, and when he slew the lion, and he came back, and there was a, a hive of bees in the carcass, and he went and he got the honey. He was from the tribe of Dan, partially. Also from the tribe of Judah, and from the tribe of Dan. It was on one side his mother, and on one side his father was that way. That has that harkens back to this whole thing about the tribe of Dan that I'm not going to get into this week, but this is why the Merovingians are obsessed with bees and honeycombs and things of this nature. It's one of the reasons. Okay, and that has to do with the tribe of Dan. And um, uh, we'll get into that more next week, hopefully. Now, Solomon was aggressive in consolidating his power over the kingdom from the outset. To say that the Antichrist will outdo Solomon in this respect would be an enormous understatement. However, exalted because of his great power, wealth, and fame, Solomon is primarily revered by the occult societies because he led the nation of Israel away from the worship of the true God into the worship of pagan gods. And again, you can read the Bible and think nothing else. Because the Bible is very clear what Solomon did at the end of his days. After his wives and his concubines had led his heart away. He led the nation of Israel away from the worship of the true God into the worship of pagan gods. It says he erected, you know, these things to Jebosh and Moloch and these types of things. And, and you can't do that. <laughs> uh, the, what we're going we're gonna to read about that right now. Solomon is the model for the Merovingian kings because he built high places for the great mother goddess Ashtaroth or Astarte, okay, of whom the Merovingians worship as the Roman Diana or the Greek Artemis. So he was into Diana worship too. Okay, let's go to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11. 
But before I get into this, I'm going to just hit a few of the main verses that relate to Solomon in 1 Kings before we get to this last passage. Uh, and I believe this is where things started to go wrong, okay? Which is in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, And Solomon made an affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He made like an agreement or a compact with, with the Pharaoh, king of Egypt and took the Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Now, I don't believe God told him to, to whatever. If he told him not to even go to Egypt to get horses, why would he tell him to make an affinity with the Pharaoh of Egypt and take the Pharaoh's daughter? Remember, she is a basically demonically possessed. Okay? She's the Pharaoh's daughter. She's a high-level occultist daughter. The sins of the forefather are carried to the third and fourth generation. So this woman is, I'm sorry, she is demonically infested generationally. So when Sarah, Pharaoh, Solomon made an affinity with Pharaoh, that was bad enough. But then he took the Pharaoh's daughter. Now there's no other way that you can um, cross-contaminate someone than to sleep with them. There's no other way that you could that you can do more um, cross contamination of demonic infestation is that when you have sexual union with somebody, okay? And I, I believe that you can prove that from the Bible. Well, he took Pharaoh's daughter and he and he brought her into the city of David, and until he had made an end of the building of his own house, so he had her there while he was building the temple. That was where I really believe that he went really wrong right from the beginning. This is the start of Solomon's downfall. And then it says, um, in verse 2, only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built under the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in his statutes in David his father. Only he sacrificed and burned incense in high places. Compromise. He compromised too. Solomon was compromised even when he was building the temple. He was sacrificing and burning incense in high places. High places are never in reference to a good thing. It's in reference, typically, to idol worship here. Okay, and it's funny, because it said that Solomon loved the Lord and walked in his statues of David's his father. Only, in other words, this is saying, other than he sacrificed and burned incense in high places, which is a very common theme you'll see of the kings. Okay, now another interesting verse, which is kind of, it, it, a little bit paradoxical, I guess. If we go to First Chronicles twenty-eight twenty, after we've just read that those verses, First Chronicles twenty-eight twenty says, "And David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and of good courage, and do it." And this is about building the temple, okay? And do it, fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee; He will not fail thee nor forsake thee until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of God, of the, of the Lord. Well, that's strange. Now, Solomon was a big boy. He made his own choices. He was the wisest man on earth. He was really without excuse. He didn't have to go the way that he went. But it's almost as though God, he's saying he will not fail thee nor forsake thee until 
thou hast finished all the work for the service of the... Maybe, he, maybe it was like he had foreknowledge that Solomon was going to fall away. But God was still going to use Solomon in order to build the temple. Despite knowing the fact, because God knows the beginning from the end, he knew Solomon was going to fall away. He knew he was going to get involved in high-level witchcraft at the end of his life. Until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Wow, that's... What can you say? I mean, you know, it's just one of those, those things. But it does relate to this. So, um... Okay, now here, here's another thing. Because people say, well, Solomon's in heaven. I don't know about that. I don't ever see any evidence of him repenting in the Bible. I don't see it. He's not mentioned in Hebrews, where it talks about like the Hall of Fame of Faith, where even Rahab the harlot was mentioned. But see, she actually turned from her sin and stayed turned. Solomon started out good, but ended up bad. And, and again, there's that expression. It's really not how you start. It's how you finish. Okay, and this is really appropriate with Solomon. But see, the problem is, is you got Solomon, richest man on earth, wisest man on earth. You know, uh, had all these wives, had all these wives turn his heart away in, in these concubines. You know, he w he put himself in a situation, particularly with the wives, where he was destined for failure. You can't do the things he did and expect to be strong enough to resist all the evil. You can't immerse yourself in evil and unbiblical things and expect yourself to come out on top biblically. Listen to this verse. First Chronicles uh Chapter 28, verse 9. Um, and I believe this is David talking to Solomon. He said, And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all the hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Now, Solomon, unfortunately, did forsake God in a big, gigantic way. And we're going to look at the verses that prove that. Okay, so we, we know that according to 2 Chronicles 8.1, it says, And it came to pass at the end of twenty years, wherein Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house. Okay, so again, it was we're dealing with a twenty-year period here. And then if we go to verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 8, one, uh, it says, And Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David into the house which he had built for her. And he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places are holy, where unto the ark of the Lord hath come. So maybe he had some conviction there. Uh, but again, you know, the point is, he should have never married Pharaoh's daughter or made an affinity with Pharaoh in the first place. Okay, so again, and then we have in, in uh, the next chapter, um, chapter 9, 2 Chronicles, verse 1, And now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred three score and six talents of gold. Um, so again, we got 666 there. Okay, and... And then we can go down a little bit uh, to verse 18. Just another couple interesting parallels. It said in verse 18, And there were six steps to the throne, to his throne, with a footstool of gold. Uh, and then it said, there were, verse 19, There were twelve lions that stood there upon the one side and upon the other. The six steps. So it makes reference to the number six. 
you know, again, twice here. Uh, we have 666 talents of gold. Uh, it's just not really the best things to be associated with. Uh, and then it says in verse 20, And all the drinking vessels of the king of Solomon were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None were silver. It says it was not anything accounted of in the days of Solomon. Silver wasn't even accounted of in the days of Solomon. That's how rich this guy was. So if anybody on the planet was going to get a big head, it was going to be Solomon most likely, okay? So it's just unfortunate. Now if we go back to First uh, Kings... We can look at, um, you know, some other things that, you know, he was, Solomon's wisdom excelled all wisdom, excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east, the country, and all the wisdom of Egypt. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceedingly much, and the largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. So, in other words, this guy was so blessed, but at the same time, unfortunately, I believe in the end, because really primarily of the affinity that he made with Pharaoh, starting out, taking Pharaoh's daughter, that was the process that I really believe started his downfall. Okay? Uh, now again, we can go to 1 Kings chapter 5. It says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, remember what we were talking about, Hiram of If? Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that they anointed him king in the room of his father, for Hiram was ever a lover of David. And that doesn't mean he was David's lover. It means he loved David as, as a man, okay? And again, this is where I believe they, they bring in Hiram Abiff, okay, into uh, this whole thing. And if we go further, and it says again, it, it, it makes mention of Hiram again in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 13. The king of Solomon sent and fetched Hiram out of Tyre. He was a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali. Okay, again, this is the whole widow's son legend. And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker of brass. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning work of all the works of brass. Okay, so again, the, the Freemasons are absolutely obsessed with this whole thing. And again, you know, you deal with, now you're dealing with also the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and these types of things that the Freemasons um, are also obsessed with. Okay, so if we go further... Going further, let's go to, um, okay, so, so the Lord will warn Solomon, actually, uh, in verse 9, after he had finished the building of the house of the Lord, remember, now thou it's finished. Remember what David had said, he said, until the house of the Lord be finished, the Lord will be with you. Okay, now, it's not as though God wanted him to depart. Okay, Solomon was a big boy, he made up his own mind, just like we all do. Okay, but Solomon's, um, it, it says here, The Lord said unto him, Solomon, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication. This is verse 9, verse, uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever. And mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments. Then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, that was the big thing. 
literally going and worshiping other gods. How could you do that in in regard to what Solomon had already... I mean, he had spoken to Solomon, you know, personally. And God had given him all this stuff. The, The thought of him actually going and serving and worshiping other gods... Not to say that I think I'm Mr. Perfect. It's hard for me to comprehend how he could do that. But I really believe, again, we look back at the affinity made with Pharaoh, taking Pharaoh's daughter as as wife is where it started. And then it says, verse 7, I will cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them in this house, and I have hollowed for my name, will I cast out of my sight. Um... And again, that's a, that's the warning. And then it talks about Hiram Abiff again. At the end of the 20 years, after Solomon had built the two houses, now Hiram, the king of Tyre, had furnished Solomon with the cedar trees and the fir trees and the gold, according to all of his desire. Then the king Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. And Hiram came out of Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they pleased him not. Well, 20 cities? That's all I get? Boy, oh boy, this guy was hard to please. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> he wasn't happy with the cities that uh, uh, that he got. I guess they weren't nice enough or something. It said, so, so, so King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. So again, if anybody was going to get a big head, it was probably going to be him. Okay? And all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Okay, now I'm already at uh, an hour 17 uh, minutes, so I'm, I'm going to have to go to the next part of this teaching. We'll pick up in chapter 11 of 1 Kings when we start this next part.